Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. It is uh, Father Charles's 50th anniversary of ordination today. <laughs> He promised me he wouldn't say anything about it. <laughs> now he has to go to confession. <laughs> it's been 50 glorious years, and my success is not my success. It's the, the people who have helped me throughout my 50 years as a priest. If it wasn't for the people, I would not have been a good priest. I ask you to please welcome back Father Paul Schenk. Thank you, Father Deacon. And uh, what a joy it has been to spend these weeks with you. We're exploring some very important portions of the Word of God given to us from Shimon Kefa, St. Peter. And so tonight, I'd like for us just to recap very briefly and uh, concisely what we have looked at so far. But before we do that, I want to add my own very enthusiastic endorsement to the Institute because I travel a great deal, and uh, I have been in, oh, I guess about 70 or 80 diocesan settings in the last few years, and um, this is an absolutely sterling example of catechesis and the new evangelization. I think it's a model for the dioceses. And I told Deacon earlier that I hope that uh, we can use the Institute as a model for catechesis and evangelization in our di my own diocese, but also to spread the word. And I said he should be out lecturing on how to do this, uh, really, because I think it's not only is it urgent and essential, but it is in obedience because the new evangelization is what the church is calling us to. And uh, it needs to begin with us so that we can then share that truth, the truth that resonates in every human soul. I say when I'm speaking on pro-life, I always tell the audience, remember this, that everyone that you have ever known, that you know now, 
and that you will ever know in your entire life was born pro-life. Everyone. No one is born pro-death. Nobody. And so our job is just to talk people back into what they once knew, which they've been talked out of, because truth resonates with the nature of humanity. Case in point, just this past week, I told you last Sunday night, that, or did I, that I was going immediately, well, I was going immediately into the Supreme Court on Monday for the Chief Justice's annual dinner and, and lecture series in the court, but then I was immediately going from there to the master class on bioethics at the Kennedy Institute at Georgetown University for the whole week. It was eight hours a day for five days. Well, it was Georgetown. So, uh, so everybody, let me say that again, everything was there. Okay, but, but I can tell you this, that at the end of that intensive focus on the subject of ethics and morality and bioethics, I can tell you this, that natural law won the day. <laughs> won the day. Uh, why? Because after prattling in consequentialism and playing with principalism, everybody felt a little empty. Like, this, this doesn't... What, what, what resonates with the soul? And natural law was right there to rescue the day. So um, truth resonates. People are liberated by it. That's why the new evangelization is such a joy. It's just a joy. It's not a drudgery. It's wonderful to set people free. Did you see, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Did you see that movie? Okay. Do you remember when um, the three escaped cons get to the cousin's place and uh, he's whittling in the yard? Remember that? And he looks up and he says, Spect you want those chains knocked off. Everybody wants their chains knocked off. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, it's a joy to be liberated by the truth. And so uh, I just add my, my enthusiastic endorsement of the mission of the Institute, uh, Deacon, your marvelous work here, and all of you for your support of it. And for that, you get a chance at the interlinear. Okay. <laughs> So we go back now. We have looked at these two marvelous encyclicals. We'll finish Second Peter, God willing, uh, tonight. <laughs> Those signs, the placards that Deacon holds up are scary. I I'm <laughs> give myself a little forewarning here. Let's just recap. We have two letters. The first, which we have called... First Peter, shorthand, that comes from the later titles. The titles to these letters were added somewhat down the line, but a perfectly suitable title. The second letter, or the first letter of Peter, 
we're looking at the first letter of Peter, we saw that it is, first of all, a somewhat formal document that was composed in a finer Greek. We saw that apparently it was an interpreted document that was perhaps finally composed by what we called him Silas, or Silvanus, which is the form of the name that appears in, at the end of First Peter in the fifth chapter. And uh, this would be completely in keeping with the way in which a letter of this import would be composed and, and then finally published. On the other hand, we saw last week that Second Peter is a more personal document that is in a less refined Greek, a one that would seem to indicate the Greek as a second language. We saw, too, that whereas First Peter was written to the church at a time in which the church was in distress, so he addresses a church that may have been the subject of some political tension, Perhaps he was referring to a multivalent kind of uh, distress that may have included both political difficulty, that is, that the church was being persecuted by the state, that would pertain to the Gentiles because the Jews had an exemption from the Roman requirement of burning incense to Caesar, uh, which was very often the reason why if um, members of what the Romans would call a cult, which would not honor Caesar and therefore the Roman state, they would be sanctioned in some way. They may be put into prison, uh, punished in other ways. That would pertain to the Gentiles in the church. And perhaps there was a kind of equal suffering that the Jewish Christians to whom he was writing were suffering because of their being rejected by their Jewish countrymen and by their co-religionists, so to speak, which then would press them into danger. They could be in danger of losing their exemption if the Jewish community and its elders uh, were able to persuade the Romans that these people these Jewish Christians, they were called minim, heretics, were not Jews. That would then put them in jeopardy of now being punished by the state. So Peter, in First Peter, is writing to a church in distress. In Second Peter, here we called him Simeon Petros, or Shimon Kepha would be the Aramaic, Simon Peter, Peter is himself writing in a condition of distress. Peter is in distress. First Peter is more of a document that is a communication which is a formal and doctrinal approach, whereas Second Peter is more of a personal and pastoral voice in that 
letter. So we have these distinctions. Let me put an asterisk here because there is a structural cause for those who doubt that Second Peter should be included in the canon, and that is that in the two oldest Aramaic New Testaments, Second Peter doesn't appear. Second Peter isn't in the oldest Aramaic New Testament. Well, neither is James uh, and the other Jewish Christian letters. I'm not arguing that Second Peter was written originally in Aramaic. I told you last week that we can hear the Aramaic echo through Peter, but it appears that Peter himself wrote the second letter. It has the signs of a man writing in his second tongue, his second language. But just the differences between the two, the distinctions between them, have caused some to question whether Second Peter should be included in the canon, whether it was written by Peter at all. But all of us have experienced either ourselves reading or writing distinctly different forms of communication. Well, we may be a member of a profession and write a report in one setting that's going to be distinctly different from a personal letter even to a colleague in the same profession. We write according to the need, to the requirement, the expectations. And it seems that those were distinctly different. But Peter himself is in a different frame of heart and mind in Second Peter than in First Peter. So these are the distinctions between the two letters, and I think they enrich our consideration of these letters. I don't think that they're a cause for putting us into a quandary, whether these are genuine, whether they should be in the canon and so forth. I think they give us an insight into the heart and the mind of our first pope, and I think that is a marvelous aspect of these two remarkable pieces of literature that come to us directly from the earliest Bible. All right, now last week we ended uh, on the brink there where uh, we were looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, rereading verses 3 through 11. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us, through these things, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. We'll put a note there in our heads. For this very reason you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. We always seem to get there, don't we? Always come to that supremacy of love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things 
is nearsighted and blind and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never stumble, for in this way entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Now we saw here that Peter tells us that we might become participants of the divine nature. And the catechism at number 460 quotes St. Athanasius, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. And we left it hanging there. But we look at verses 3 and the first part of verse 4, and we find the clue as to what St. Athanasius meant and what the catechism means when it says that we might partake of the divine nature, and that is his divine power and his divine promises. And the second part of verse 4, it is the Greek underlying the translation that answers the question, how is it that we become God. Well, the word here is koinonios, the sharing, the fellowship. And so we are entering into the divine nature. There's a term divinization uh, for this, but there is also another term, and that is the trinification. The trinification. In other words, we enter into the life of the Holy Trinity, becoming partakers of that life through the divine power, the dunamis, the enlivening power that's transferred to us as we enter into that fellowship of the divine Godhead. So we enter into the life of the Trinity. We are incorporated into Christ. I remember a conversation I had once with a young evangelical youth minister, marvelous man, lovely man, deeply devoted to the gospel and to youth ministry. But he said something to me many years ago. He said, I don't do church. I do Jesus. And all of a sudden I had this horrible image of decapitation. The church is incorporated the church is the body, and Christ is the head. And Christ is our God. So we cannot separate church from Christ. It's impossible. It violates the very meaning of church and of Christ. And so... As the body of Christ, we enter into the divine Godhead and we participate, we become participants. We have that fellowship, that sharing in the divine nature. And we see that in verses 5 through 9. And true to the pastoral impetus of this second letter of Peter, he outlines in a very moving way 
the characteristics of that divine nature in verses 5 through 7. We read them, we won't read them again. And the effects of that divine nature in the life of the Christian in verse 8. So there are signs of life. How many medical professionals do we have here uh, this evening? Very many, yes. So there are indicators of life, are there not? In other words, you, you look for indicators of life. We talk about vital signs and so forth that can be measured and seen. Well, here are the vital signs Peter outlines for us. If we are partakers in the divine nature, there are vital signs that can be measured, can be seen. They work themselves out in the life of the believer of Christ. So we have both the characteristics and the effects of that divine nature, and they are active and present and manifested in the life of the Christian and the body of Christ. This is not so much the individual as much as the member of the corporate body of Christ. And then, in verse 9, the contrast between the divine and the fallen nature. Peter puts this juxtaposition of the attributes of the divine life against that of the fallen nature which is commensurate with original sin, and he puts it out there in this very succinct way so that we can see the distinction between the two. We can see the benefit, the blessing of living in the divine life and the emptiness and loss of living according to the fallen nature. And so the finality of the divine nature is given to us in verses 10 and 11. We read there, that is, that ultimate entry into the life of God. So we're in the process, this process of entering into the divine life and ultimately, as we pursue that with the help of God's grace, we are finally drawn in to the divine nature, to the divine life. Verses 10 and 11, we have the existential finality. That is, we have what it is that in this life we are seeking to enter into, and that is all those attributes, those benefits. If you will, St. Paul enumerated them when he spoke about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. These are the aspects of uh, the work of the Spirit within us. The Sermon on the Mount, the characteristics of the divine nature, those things that mark us as Christians. So we have the existential finality, but then we have in verse 11 that eternal finality. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Will be richly provided for you. So there's the eternal finality. And then we move on, verses 12 through 24, 
to the majestic glory of Christ, the word of God, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. I think it right as long as I am in this body to refresh your memory since I know that my death will come soon as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting just to make a note here that this was one of the formal accusations made by the Romans against the Christians that they followed fanciful myths. Does that sound familiar? And uh, he says, we didn't follow clever devised myths, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. And of course, Peter, in the most wondrous way, because there he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says to them, I'm speaking to you from personal experience. I saw this glory. Remember that. Peter there uh, on the uh, mountain of transfiguration. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice come from heaven. Now, here's, I just have to put a little asterisk, here's a, a, a wonderful Hebraism. Notwithstanding, we believe that he was a, a natural Aramaic speaker, but he would have been through training in Hebrew for the synagogue for prayers. And uh, this is a very important term within Judaism, we call this heavenly voice the bat kol, bat kol. Uh, we might transliterate it B-A-T, that's one word, and then kol, K-O-L. The bat kol means literally the daughter of a voice. Kol is the voice, and bat, you've heard of bar mitzvah, right? Well, that's the Aramaic for a son of the commandments when a young boy is confirmed in his membership in the covenant of Abraham and is responsible to keep the law of Moses. But then you've heard of bat mitzvahs? Okay, well, uh, Orthodox Jews have never heard of them, but you've heard of them. And uh, so bat is both the Hebrew and the Aramaic for a daughter. And the daughter of the voice is actually the word it's an Aramaism within Hebrew of an echo, but it refers to the voice that comes from heaven. When God would speak, for instance, the words on Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given on Sinai, the rabbis say that that was a bat kol, an echo from heaven. And here, Peter reaches for this very phrase. It comes right to, it's embedded in the Talmud. You'll see it in the Talmud, especially in the Halakha, in the Talmud, the stories that the rabbis tell, they'll say, a bat kol was heard. So he refers to it right here 
that a voice that came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have verse 19, the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Why does he even have to say this? Do any of us believe that prophecy is motivated by people's uh, own uh, devisings, their own opinions, their own ideas? Uh, have you been watching cable television lately? Uh, in this day, even in Peter's day, there was a kind of sort of prophetic industry or, or profession, and prophets competed with each other. There were opposing oracles, and uh, people would be fans of different oracles that competed with one another. And I guess this is common to human nature because we have something like it even today if we watch a lot of religious television programs. Now, in verses 12 through 15, Peter is conscious, we saw, of his impending martyrdom. In verse 14, he says, knowing that soon is the putting off of the tabernacle. Now here again comes another wonderful Hebraism or Aramaism surfacing up. Remember we said that this is the Greek of an Aramaic Hebrew thinker. So he's thinking, he's reaching for Hebrew and Aramaic ideas and then he's conveying them in Greek as a second or even third language. And uh, here is the word skenamatos, skenamatos, this is the very word for the mishkan, we call it in Hebrew, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where God promised that he would meet with the people of Israel in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, he would descend and his presence would abide. Now, we call this the Shekinah, the Shekinah is the abiding of God, God's abiding presence in the midst of his people from Shkan, Shkan, which means to settle. And Mishkan, there's a preposition there, Mishkan means the place of abiding, the place of abiding. So the tent of meeting, Moses' tent of meeting, where there was two chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies. The tent of meeting for Moses was divided into two parts. There was the holy place and then the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred Ark. And on the Ark was the kaporot, the mercy seat. And God told Moses to tell the people that they were to come to the tent of meeting, that God would descend there, they would bring the blood of the sacrifice, the high priest would spatter it on the mercy seat, on the kaparot, 
and God would descend and dwell with his people there at the mercy seat. And this was the term tabernacle. And of course, we've now used that term to describe the place of Christ's abiding as we reserve the blessed sacrament there. And we refer to that as the tabernacle. For the people of Israel, it was the tent of meeting where God descended and dwelt in their midst. And this comes across in the Greek. Peter reaches for this in his heart and in his mind. He reaches for this concept of the place of God's abiding. He uses the Greek word to describe it. But this is, by the way, and uh, we call it an onomatopoetic word. The Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So this we call Septuagintal Greek. It's a Greek term that is deliberately used because it sounds similar to the Hebrew word. So we have the Hebrew word is Mishachan, Mishachan, and here we have Skunimatos, Skunimatos. So there's a similar sound to the two, and he takes this very word for the tabernacle, and he says, I'm soon to put off this tent, this tabernacle. I'm soon to put it off. Now, think about that for a moment. Just think about that for a moment. What is the imagery here when we talk about partakers of the divine nature, divinization, or trinification, entering into the divine life of God? Just imagine this for a moment. Peter reaches for this eminently Hebrew, Aramaic, Jewish idea that God said to his people, in spite of your failings and sinfulness, in spite of your disloyalty to the covenant, you are to put in the middle of your encampment, your settlement, this sacred tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And there in the Holy of Holies, Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, you are to put the ark, the sacred ark. And on that ark will be the mercy seat spattered with the vicarious sacrificial blood. And I will come and I will dwell in your midst. But that's done in this tent, which is a temporary structure that's broken down and then carried with them to the next encampment and then erected again and then carried off again. And Peter reaches for this magnificent imagery of the temporary structure where God dwells. And he says, I'm going to dismantle this soon. We're going to take this, this temporary tent down. And then Peter envisions that the dwelling of God, this Shekinah, in Aramaic it's called Shekinta, the Shekinta, the abiding presence of God, he'll be taken up into it fully, totally. Not in this temporary sense, temporal, not in this sense of in the world, but ultimately he is to be taken. Uh, and he says soon, this is going to happen soon to me. 
and I've got stuff to do. <laughs> I've got a bucket list here for you. <laughs> See, I've got to get some things done for you because, he says, the Lord has told me that I'm going to put this tabernacle, this tent, off. And just imagine, just imagine the, the vision that he has before him of being taken up into the divine majesty. And he refers to this as the majesty of the word in verses 16 through 18. We've already read that there, so we won't reiterate it. And then he tells us the meaning of that word. For we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What a beautiful description of the Word of God. You know, we, Deacon, you announce at the reading of the Word of God in the liturgy, be attentive, yes? You know, uh, at times, I, I don't want you to think that I'm policing people during the liturgies, but, but it irks me when we have the liturgy of the word and the word of God is being read and people are doing this from the Missalette in the pew. We've lost the discipline of sitting and listening, of heeding the word of God. And, you know, I want to just stand up and say, put the blasted Missalette down. That would be a Jewish... Latin right deacon's role, you know, the, in the beautiful, gorgeous liturgy of the East, be attentive, be attentive, be attentive. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You know, we should discipline ourselves and not have to be always looking at it in, in black and white block print. Let's heed and listen to that word. But he warns them. He gives them an admonition. Now, beginning in chapter 2, and I'm just going to just read the first three verses and I'll send you down to verse 9 on your own. But just the first three verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them long ago has not been idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Listen, let's be very careful. In our sincere and necessary motivations for ecumenical and interreligious diet, let's be very careful that we do not entertain destructive falsehoods. So we have to be careful of this, that there are spiritual dangers that will lead you away from the path of partaking in the divine nature, that will draw you apart. And these pernicious falsehoods are always present. They are especially present at this time. And again, Peter says, before I go, I need to give you these very careful warnings and instructions. And the threat we find 
is the threat of error. So in verses 1 through 3, he introduces these two compound words in the Greek. These are pseudoprophete and pseudodidaskaloi, the pseudoprophets and the pseudoteachers. We have to be very cautious there. And then he goes on, and we won't go into the detail here. Time is short tonight, where he refers to the meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have to just pause here for verses 7 through 9 very quickly. This is a very important part. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let me just look here at verse 9. This term, here it's Eusebius. The word godly, we often think of it in a sort of practical, almost folksy, almost Americana way uh, when we talk about godliness. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. I don't know. But anyway, we think of godliness as some kind of practical, but this is the very word Peter uses synonymously with the entering into the divine nature. It's God-likeness, becoming like God. To be godly is to be God-like. So this is much more than just a, a kind of folksy goodness. There's a lot of good about being a folksy good person, but this is not what Peter has in mind. He has in mind being ever drawn into the divine nature the trinification, the uh, divinization of the Christian, of the body of Christ being drawn ever closer. Now we're going to skip over a few things. You have them in your outline, verses 12 through 16. And I quoted Pope St. Leo the Great there because this is just a marvelous commentary on that text, but you can see it right in your outline that you received last week. But do notice that Peter pauses here to expound on the dignity of the human person. Verse 13, 14, and 16, the distortion of that dignity, the destruction of that dignity, and the descent from that dignity. And I think this is so absolutely imperative that we understand this today because we have rising pseudo-prophets like Peter Singer, who would reduce the human person to really another animal with no dignity apart from simply being an animal. That there's nothing distinctive about the human person. But Peter tells us that the human person is the very image of God in the world. Again, he comes back to it almost seems as if he's thinking, I need to tell you more about these characters because you've got to be very careful and wary here. And he describes them. They're rootless and shiftless. They promise freedom, but they themselves are in bondage. They forfeit their own acquittal and they are condemned and they're drawing others in their own condemnation. So he comes back to it and he says, I've got to tell you more about this. 
you've got to be on your guard. You've got to be very, very careful here. And I think this is uh, so critical in our own hour. This is brought immediately up to our own time. And then he's going to finish with the great hope of the Lord's return. And just think for a moment of how this is integrated into the whole spirit of the liturgies. How much the liturgies invoke the return of the Lord. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 3. We're not going to go into the details on all of that. Just to pick up a few very important aspects of it. First, he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, that the faithful anticipate the return of the Lord. This is an underappreciated component of the liturgy and of our own lives as it's expressed in the liturgies, that we anticipate, we live in the promise of our Lord's return. The faithful anticipate it. Peter says, the ignorant reject it. Where are the signs of his coming? Everything is just as it's always been, Peter says, they say. They say there are no signs of the coming of the Lord uh, because everything is just as it's always been. But the faithful must patiently await that coming of the Lord. And the ignorant, he says, will miss out on it. And the faithful's works will reflect it. In other words, it has a practical reality in our lives just as the characteristics of the divine life work out in us, in the church, so also the faithful and patient anticipation of the return of the Lord works uh, out within the life of the church. She lives in that anticipation and her works reflect it. And finally, uh, I wanted to make a note here of how he concludes his letter in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Just these final words. I am wrapping up here, Deacon. I see him beginning to wind up with the microphone. It's going to come flying my way in just a moment. Okay. Verse 17 and 18, you therefore, beloved, since you are forewarned, beware that you are not carried away with every error of the lawless and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace and knowledge, and I saw here this reflection of our current Holy Fathers and our consciousness of fides ad ratio, of faith and reason that these are not in conflict with one another. And I think this is so important for our current time. And I'll finish by just recommending a book I meant to recommend to you last Sunday night, and that is Pope Benedict's Introduction to Christianity. If you haven't yet read Introduction to Christianity, it was published under Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, and the chapter on the God of the philosophers, the God of the philosophers. And I think it's a beautiful, succinct, concise treatment of the integration and dialogue between the reason that was so well explored by the Greek mind and the revelation that came through 
the Hebrew Scriptures and how they both came together in the life and the identity of the church. So I highly recommend to you that you get the, the little paperback book, Introduction to Christianity, and uh, for this last point, that you read the chapter, The God of the Philosophers. Very, very helpful, engaging a culture which demands that you have a proof in science and philosophy for the claims that you make in faith. Deacon, I surrender. <laughs> Thank you, Father Paul. Thank you very much, Father Paul, for an excellent presentation, excellent series. This will be a, a real treasure on our website for years to come and hopefully generations to come. So thank you very much. I know you were wondering, you know, where I was last week and so forth. Some of you know I was um, at my daughter's first ballet recital, which of course I couldn't miss. And I have to report to you, I'm not biased. She's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> beyond, you know. After they're doing their little dance, and um, it was time for her to curtsy, and, and she's learned how to curtsy very nicely, so she, she did it once with everyone else, and then as they walked off the stage, she just thought it was so fun, she had a second time, and then a third time, and a fourth time, they finally had to kick her off the stage, so she takes after her father. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back together. Father, thank you. This has been wonderful. I wanted to ask you, is St. Peter kind of giving a little bit of a shout-out for the hierarchy when he writes in chapter 3 that he's reminding them that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles? It seems like there's an unwritten saying, through your apostles, their successors, the ones that are ordained with authority, and especially in light of uh, 120 where he says, um, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It seems like they fit together. And that would include the deacons, right, yeah. Father? Would... <laughs> you know, there, there's a kind of easiness to it. And notice that it's in his second letter, which is the more personal and pastoral. And I think many people often think of the, both the hierarchy and the magisterium as the dogmatic, doctrinaire, uh, authoritarian side of the church. Um, but Peter introduces it in this context of very careful pastoral wisdom, uh, saying that you have to be together with the church on this because we're in a world that's you know opposing the truth. And so it, it's a pastoral instinct really within him. I think if we see the magisterium and the hierarchy in that sense, that's the proper sense to see it in. It's the pastoral care of the soul. Uh, and uh, so I'm glad you point that out. Yeah, yeah, good. Father, my question was uh, in that St. Peter speaks quoting of biblical examples of judgment of God on Israel and others. But at the same time, he say, speaks of God delaying his judgment so that more may be saved. What can this tell us about the final judgment that awaits us? Well, Peter is the one who uses the phrase, God is not slack in his judgment. It's very interesting because the, it appears that the criticism or the, what, that he's answering to is, well, if God were going to judge sin, he would have done it already. 
And once again, we have this pastoral concern for souls. And Peter says, no, it's God's loving patience that is allowing for conversion to take place. And I think, you know, when we think of judgment, we think of a fixed sort of condemnation. In some respects, this came out among some of the reformers, the Protestant Reformation, this sort of idea of a fixed judgment that comes upon us regardless of our own response to God's admonitions or his chastisements. This is, this is a done deal, and we're going to face that judgment or that salvation without any reference point to our own cooperation and ongoing conversion. But I think that's something that really distinguishes the Catholic view, which is the view that we're always in conversion until that moment when we are before God. We're always responding to his admonitions, to his chastisements, to his loving coaxing of us through the promptings of the Spirit. That's all part of the divine life working within us. I think that's something that's reflected in the phrase from the psalmist that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning, that these are merciful gestures in our lives, even the chastisements, even the sufferings, and that's certainly Peter's view of his own suffering and the suffering of the Christians who are either persecuted or rejected. Um, that's part of the ongoing process of conversion. Thank you, Father. Why do you think that um, Peter singled out the story of Lot? Is it understood that it's a reflection of the Roman culture, or was there trouble in paradise, so to speak? Well, actually, the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah factors very high in, um, in rabbinic literature. Now, that, I'm not suggesting that he did that for that reason, but what it tells us is that it was paradigmatic for Jewish thinking, at the, and to some extent still is, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, so many lessons can be derived from it. But it would have been part of the consciousness of a Palestinian Jewish thinker, very, very much so. But you bring up, it was it illustrative of the Roman culture of the Roman world. It most certainly would be applicable there. I'm not so sure that Peter's necessarily using it against Rome, except maybe just in the largest sense of the term, uh, because where he was writing to while it was under Roman jurisdiction would have been perhaps more beset by the Greek paganisms and even the pagan Gnosticisms that were coming out of the East and Asia at that time. But yes, it would have been paradigmatic in that sense of the word, much like we said Babylon, Babylon, I think in the instance of, of St. Peter, I think Babylon does refer to Rome. So these things are very evocative, they're very imaginative, they're very potent terms that can be used without exacerbating the dangers of the ones he's writing to. Because if he were to call them for what they are, rather than using these vivid biblical images, imaginary language, uh, he would put them in greater danger. So he uses these symbolic names. Father, um, thank you very much for your teaching. Is there anything in Peter or any of the other uh, associated uh, works referred to 
that speak about the intercessory power of the faithful in helping bring about the kingdom of God, you know, in time and in space? Not specifically when it comes to intercession. Do you mean by prayer. in prayer? I suppose in the in the very larger sense of the word of entering into the life of God, and that of course strongly implies and actually requires prayer, both the personal prayer that's expressed in the prayer closet, so to speak, but also the liturgical life of the church. And I think we saw in First Peter the powerful underlying liturgical structure when we looked at the Passover that lay behind the Haggadah that lay behind Peter's thinking. The idea that somehow the life of prayer in the church can be separated from the liturgy is just simply an, an utterly unbiblical idea because written through all the scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, are the liturgies, uh, as we know. The life of the Palestinian Jew was a liturgical life, whether it was in the Beit HaMidrash, whether it was in the, the small house of studies, or whether it was the Beit Tefillah, the house of prayer, or whether it was the synagogue, or the synagogue, or whether it was the holy temple, or temples, as the case may be. There were actually three of them, Jerusalem, and then Elephantine Island, and Alexandria, had a, or, and uh, Ethiopia had a temple, so there were three temples at one point. But the holy temple in Jerusalem, they were all part of the entering into the liturgies, and the liturgies were not just the recitations, the oral recitations, they included mass movements, I mean, of pilgrimages. And this is still echoed. If you look at the life of what might be called uh, colloquially ultra-Orthodox Jews, whether it's in the Holy Land or elsewhere in the world, it's an extremely liturgical life. So when you talk about intercessive prayer, prayerful life, entering into the divine life, that very much includes liturgical life, life in the liturgies. Yeah. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Okay, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-635. 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.